0: Welcome to Success the Last, a podcast that honestly explores the complicated topic of success. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I'm a partner at Delap and leader of our wealth advisory practice. During each episode, we're going to talk to a business owner, entrepreneur, real estate investor, or industry thought leader about their own experiences, insights, and observations as it pertains to life, business, finances, and ultimately fulfillment. Candidly, it can be lonely at the top. Our desire is to use this podcast to connect you with the ideas and resources so you can be better equipped to make more predictable, profitable, and rewarding decisions as you juggle the competing priorities of life, business, and money. Keep in mind, this is a podcast. It's not meant to be a replacement for your CPA or financial advisor. So be sure to check with the appropriate professionals before implementing any of the ideas. Welcome back to another episode of Success That Lasts. Well, today we've got quite a story for you. It starts on gravel roads and proceeds to Nebraska football, ultimately to Wall Street, and then back to the gravel roads. All along the way, accruing well over $120 billion, that's right, billion, $120 billion worth of transactions. Today's conversation is with Matt Pluster. Matt's the CEO and co-founder of Bridgepoint Investment Banking. They're a boutique firm focused on supporting middle market business owners. The reason why I was excited for today's conversation is many of our clients spend 20, 30, 40 years building a business, and they only get one opportunity really to capture the value that they've built along the way and sell it correctly. I wanted Matt to share some of the insights that he's accumulated over the years. What's worked well and what are the things to be avoided? With well over two hundred transactions under his belt, he's got a lot of wisdom to share. So, without further ado, let's jump into today's conversation with Matt Pleuster. All right, Matt Pluster we're live. Let's get after it. So, let's start at the beginning here. I don't know very many people that have turned down a full ride to Harvard. So, I heard that about you. True story. True story.
1: Brilliant eighteen-year-old decision, like I had shared with Jared. I was uh, did my high school at a Catholic Benedictine monastery and boarding school. And I had an offer to walk on at the University of Nebraska. This is back in the 90s. Good Nebraska. Good. Well, when they're winning
0: national championships.
1: When everybody went to the NFL, now nobody goes to the NFL. Nonetheless, being a Nebraska kid, that was kind of a dream come true. And I thought, hey, I've been at an all boys boarding school. It's probably a pretty good way to get some dates. So I, I turned down uh, Harvard and attended the University of Nebraska. I thought, you know, we'll be winning national championships and I'll be on the big screen and About 10 seconds after getting there and about 10 seconds into the first practice, realized that everybody there was bigger and faster than I was. So quite a humbling experience. And it was such a great decision that here in Nebraska, where football is borderline a religion, there's a bunch of these like local books. And there's even one of the books mentions that brilliant choice of some kid turned down Harvard to walk on in Nebraska. So I look back on it fondly, even though it wasn't maybe a great career decision, but I'm thankful. For where we're at today, and its life probably yeah. looks a little different had we gone to the East Coast.
0: Well, it's it's worked out really well for you personally and professionally, which is uh, why I asked you to come on to the show in the first place. So I guess I jumped in right right at eighteen years old. But why don't you kind of walk us through your origin story? I think it's an interesting journey from a gravel road to Wall Street. But let's start there, kind of the journey that led you to ultimately the decision to start your own company, which we'll talk about later.
1: Yeah, thank you. Long long and winding road. So. When the uh, small town game, usually people talk about stoplights. Not only does my hometown of Malcolm, Nebraska, population 372, I still go by the old census because it's a better story. Yeah. 2000 census, but 372 people. So grew up on a gravel road, but our small town always wins. Not only do we not have any stoplights, our main street is gravel. That usually gets it. Usually yeah,
0: yeah, it does. Well, <laughs> now you provoke curiosity. What does football look like when your town has 375 people?
1: It was eight man when we moved here. Now it's 11 man. Okay. But, you know, back then every, you know, Nebraska football was kind of a power, right? Just because football was such a big thing here. Oh, yeah. And obviously, it's the line the line play with the big corn, corn fed boys was pretty good. Oh, yeah. That was before before those Oregon Ducks created, you know, made football a spread game. <laughs> but pretty, pretty good. But I would say it's like the fervor of Texas high school football just without yeah. as much talent.
0: That's fun. All right. So, Gravel Road, small town, Malcolm, Nebraska. Walk me through how you go from the Huskers ultimately to Wall Street.
1: Yeah. So, I uh, walked on at Nebraska, had a great experience, really was all about football. My dad was actually a dentist. So, I spent the first two years in college thinking I was going to be drilling on people's mouths. I had a, a lawyer friend of my dad say, shoot, you should be an investment banker. They make a bunch of money and don't do anything. I thought, boy, that sounds good, right? Back when you're yeah. priorities were getting dates and making money. And so didn't really even know what that was. But I did know that back in the 90s, you could not get an investment banking job from pretty much anywhere other than the top 10 schools. And so I had, I quit football at Nebraska and walked in and told, told Coach Solich, hey, uh, coach, I'm going to transfer back to Harvard. And he said, well, send a check when you're a rich Harvard guy someday. And probably got what I deserved. Then I actually got waitlisted and didn't get in the second time. I think they thought, boy, we made a mistake the first time. So I transferred to the University of Chicago, probably the top econ program in the country. If you ask a UFC guy, probably the world, but maybe a little bias there. Nonetheless, great academic experience solely with the goal of getting an investment banking job back in the 90s.
0: Was Gene Fama teaching at all or just research back then?
1: Just research. But I think, we had an undergrad at U of C, which by the way, is not a big school. I think there's 6,000 kids with all four, you know, yeah. freshman through senior, the undergrad. There were five Nobel economists that taught undergrad economics there.
0: Yeah, that's pretty spectacular.
1: More than any, any other school had in history.
0: I think they also became the first school to charge six figures
1: for tuition. It was literally the highest in the country when I went there, which, you know, the arbitrage was good, right? I only paid for two years of
0: Yeah. No, super smart, but you got the full degree, you know, not not 50% of it.
1: Better lucky than good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I had one interview with Deutsche Bank, which was the second biggest bank in the world at the time. And I didn't even know what it was other than, you know, somebody maybe was going to pay me $100,000 to do something. I couldn't believe it and signed me up. And so that's how I got started. That was before you saw Manhattan rents? Yeah, exactly. I didn't realize that that was, was, uh, I would end up with a red balance every year. awesome.
0: Investment banking notorious for the hours, and obviously early in your career you can get paid through experiences, compensation, relationships. I often encourage people mentees like there's a variety of different ways to get paid, but get paid with experience and relationships later on, you can learn how to to monetize that. but obviously the hours of investment banking is is pretty notorious cpa's lawyers known for long hours, but again, investment banking kind of takes it to the next level it's kind of the old adage of if you're not going to work late on Saturday, you know don't even bother to come in on Sunday. One of those. Exactly. Talk to me a little bit about the hours that you started your career with.
1: Yeah, I mean, I started right, right at the bottom analyst one, you know, bottom of the totem pole and in a cube farm. And back then we used to keep track. So I started investment banking right after the dot-com bust, which meant that they had basically fired everybody, but I was at a leverage finance bank during kind of the LBO boom. And so basically they had fired too many people and not,
0: LBO is leverage buyout just for our listeners, yes, right?
1: Sorry. Yeah. Yep. Sometimes I go into investment banker speak. Feel free to slap me. <laughs> just translating. A long way of saying we were severely understaffed. Not that anybody cared back then, but
0: no, the staff was leveraged.
1: Yeah. The staff, everything was leveraged. <laughs> averaged 114 hours in the office my first year. Strong. Which is all the hours for sure. Kept several changes of clothes in my cube and not only were all nighters a very common thing, but the double all nighter was probably a once a month thing. Which is, you know, show up on Monday morning and leave late Wednesday night. Pretty much at that point, you have to leave because things start smelling
0: around yeah. the bullpen with a bunch of young yeah. guys. Yeah.
1: Twenty hours a week, the hours were extremely intense. It's the rearview mirror grows fonder with time, right? Or your view of it. But I, I am thankful for the experience, but I am sure glad it's over because it was, it was a tough grind. It was really hard to have a any sense of a personal life. Obviously, but very thankful for the experience. Investment banking is a an apprentice industry and certainly was very blessed with a a phenomenal kind of experience there for a guy from a gravel road in Nebraska.
0: Yeah, pretty unconventional. And so again, then you made the the unconventional choice after some time with Deutsche Bank and and Morgan Stanley, one of the biggest banks also in the world. You're married at this point, I believe, and and you decide to walk away from kind of Wall Street and get back to your roots in Nebraska. Ditch Wall Street to go back to the gravel road. Talk to me about that decision in your, in your late 20s, what you and your wife were talking about. In prior episodes, I talked about the difference between scary versus dangerous and how they, they mean different things. And so the founder of, of Sam Adams actually has an awesome quote, but essentially he was at Boston Consulting Group and he was talking about the dangerous thing was to keep doing what I was doing and be miserable to wake up you know, at the end of life realizing I'd waste my life starting Sam Adams was scary, but wasn't dangerous. Talk to me about what it was like to walk away from some of these global banks and the certainty of a large paycheck to go start something on your own in your late 20s, in the middle of, quote, nowhere, right, in relative terms to Main Street. And as a late 20s something, start this company where you're going to go compete against some of the biggest, most powerful banks in the world.
1: The Harvard decision, and then that decision, probably twice, you didn't a career counselor wouldn't have given you that advice, but for us, it wasn't all about the money. We had had a great run on Wall Street. Uh, just backing up a little bit, Jared, for those listening, my wife and I actually met at Deutsche Bank. She was an investment banker as well. We were in Chicago at that time. And we just looked around and said, hey, you know, we got in, you know, like most people probably in their early 20s of that phase of life, it, you start your career, it was about paycheck. It increasingly wasn't about paycheck, right? It was about purpose and faith and family and all those things. And in big investment banking, and it's only gotten worse in the 11 years, I guess, that we've been gone, but has really become a utility. It's hard to see the positive impact of the work you're doing, you know, when you're making a huge global private equity firm, you know, 1% richer, who really cares. And even though the dollars were big, and the deals were the Wall Street Journal deals, we just didn't feel like our work was that important. You know, we were optimizing and utilizing the time that God had given us here on earth, and we wanted to do more important work. And really, it's pretty simple. But there's a quote down on the wall at at our Lincoln office in my office that says, I think it's a a Muhammad Ali quote, but it's just life's most fundamental question is, who are you helping? Right? And it's pretty basic. But we wanted to help people. And we wanted to get up in the morning and do important work where we could make a difference and really make an impact. And so we, we, I mean, it was kind of career suicide, right? I mean, we were we were on the train long enough that the train was clearly heading down the tracks and we were going to be living in New York and making a couple million bucks a year pretty easily. We really pushed the red eject button. And by the way, once you jump off that train, it's really hard. In fact, practically never get back on that train. For us, it was, it was worth that risk just because in our view, you had one life to live. Let's live it where you want to, want to live it. And more importantly, get up in the morning and do work that you're passionate about and actually help people with your time, not just make yourself and others who are already rich, a little bit richer.
0: Yeah, well, it's commendable. From that decision, Bridgepoint Investment Banking was was born. It's a boutique investment bank, and it serves clients across their entire corporate lifestyle. So it's M&A and advisory and capital market solutions. So the website says $120 billion, with a B, of capital moved across about 215 different deals. Talk to me a little bit about what it was like to start An investment bank in your late 20s and go try to compete for some of these opportunities against brands that are 100 years old. How did you start it and where did you start?
1: I'm glad I didn't know then what I know now because I probably wouldn't have done it. I think it probably wasn't that dissimilar from most entrepreneurial stories in that it was really hard. It was a lot harder and more gut-riching than I ever thought it would be, right? The valley was wider and deeper than I ever could have imagined. A lot of sleepless nights and, quite frankly, just a lot of anxiety. Not a trust fund baby, uh, just a yeah. normal guy, right? And so, yeah. the, never raised any capital. We hired, you know, we hired an intern to do our QuickBooks, the first employee, yeah. Which we trying to figure out how to pay him two hundred bucks a month back then. And yeah. yeah, you do good work for somebody, you generate some revenue, and you hire another person. So it's been totally organic. I'm really thankful for that. I mean, I candidly, the first five years didn't know if we were going to make it. It was just really hard, and making payroll was a was a biweekly thing. But I'm really thankful for that experience, particularly given what we do. We only serve at, at Bridgepoint, not to jump ahead in the story, but we only serve private companies. Most investment banks spend most or all of their time with private equity firms, actually serving them, raising yeah. money for their companies or selling their companies or helping them buy things. We have a passion for actually beating up the rich people, for or the people that have entrepreneurial stories like us, who they've started it, maybe their grandpa did, maybe their great grandpa did. And it's their blood, sweat and tears, right? It's their family's one shot at goal to create lasting generational wealth as well as impact and also take care of their people. And so for us, even though that was really hard, certainly look at it as a blessing and it gives us good appreciation. We're in a bunch of these transactions at once, but every one of them is that person's same story. And it's so important and so critical. And they've got one shot at goal at doing it right. And I think it gives us a unique perspective that, you know no offense to the guys at Deutsche Bank and Morgan Stanley that's just another deal right for us they're not just another deal and we put that lens to every deal that we work on just like it was just like it was our entrepreneurial story
0: so how have you changed as an advisor you know when you were an employee of Deutsche Bank and an employee of Morgan Stanley you were doing the deals that showed up on the in the Wall Street Journal billion dollar deals some of the biggest deals happening yep. as an employee versus now you're a fellow business owner now you know what it's like to wake up and wonder where payroll's coming from understand that there's a whole lot of other families that are dependent upon you in this business to be successful has it changed the way that you advise clients as a fellow business owner versus a wall street employee
1: absolutely fundamentally different i mean opposite ends of the spectrum and candidly it, it not only just as an advisor but just also as an employer you know I look back as at myself as an employee and Like, I'm not sure I was a great employee. In fact, I wish I would have had the perspective that the person making payroll would have had. But as it relates to our clients and their companies, absolutely. I mean, starting and growing a business and making it as an entrepreneur, I kind of equate to having a child or being a parent. And until you go through that, and it's hard to describe, right? And so you can tell the 35-year-old guy that graduated from Princeton and has been at Goldman Sachs for 13 years how important it is. But He's been a Goldman Sachs his whole career. He's done 50 of these. Number 51 probably is going to be, you know, just another thing he does that year. Yeah, Going through this ourselves gives us a unique perspective. And it's why we've chosen to serve only private companies, because we think we can make a real difference for those folks. And more importantly, we think it's more important to make a difference for those people than just another private equity firm.
0: Yeah. So when you say private company, these are companies that probably have a, a $3 million to $30 million EBITDA.
1: That's right. Yeah. We spend all of our time kind of in the three to 30 EBITDA range, which means transactions for us are 20 to $20 million to $200 million, a lot between 20 and 100.
0: Yeah. I have shared this story before. So for the listeners that have heard it, my apologies. But I was once fly fishing with my dad in the Deschutes in Central Oregon. And uh, we were going down the river chasing the steelhead. And the guy pulled over and he said, you know, walk out to that rock go 10 feet out and then start walking down river. But when you get to that bush, watch your step because it drops off into a hole. And I was like, there's no way on this multi-day trip that the guy's got the bottom of the river memorized. And sure as heck he did. I started realizing those, it made for an interesting word picture to the value that an advisor can bring. For me, that was my second trip down the Deschutes. I obviously didn't have the bottom of the river memorized, but for this guy, he'd been down the Deschutes probably 200 times a year for the last 15 years, and he, and he has the bottom of the river memorized. So when I look at a guy like you that's led, just even with, within Bridgepoint, 215 transactions and helped move $120 billion worth of capital, I presume there's a lot of experience and insights that you've gained along the way. Whereas a lot of the clients that we serve, they're closely held private family businesses, and there's probably one time that they get, get to have this transaction. They either do it right or they don't. And so you kind of hinted at it. I sometimes refer to it as the third bucket. So there's the things we know, the things we don't know, and that dangerous third bucket, the things we didn't know, we didn't know. And if you only have one shot, that third bucket becomes very expensive. So I guess as we look at like what people should be thinking about as they're within maybe five years of of an exit, what are some of the conversations that we should be having with our clients so that they really maximize their one opportunity to capture the value they've built over their career?
1: Yeah, uh, very well said, Jared. I, And quite frankly, it's why we're in business, right? It's why we get up in the morning as Bridgepoint Investment Banking because it is oh so critical. And most good, hardworking people that have built a, call it a $50 million company, they've never done it before and they'll never do it again. And they maybe have a bad day at the office or you know, they're tired and have an HR issue and the private equity guy who's got some jockey and a young kid in high-rise in New York Making a call. If he picks up that call on that day, he's probably taking whatever transaction he "quote unquote" thinks is fair. Yeah. Unbeknownst to him, it's not a transaction; it's an LOI that mm-hmm. probably says a number that he likes enough to sign it. But really, what it says is he can't talk to anybody else, and he's now beholden to that buyer at their terms. And the reality is, is I use I use kind of a real estate analogy or you know a housing re- analogy, but nobody knocks on the door of the Nice house in the country club neighborhood because they want to pay market price if there was a sign out front, right? So that's just the economic side. And so, buyers' business model is to find conversations where there isn't an investment banker and they can buy it for what is below the clearing price at market, right? That's just the economic piece. The second piece, outside of leaving value on the table, to your point, which is their only, you know, their main event to achieve liquidity to not only take care of their families, but do charitable work and have an impact. The second piece is not all buyers look the same. So one buyer might show up and say, hey, I want to leave your company just as is. The other might actually fire everybody, right? From an administrative standpoint, change the brand that grandpa built, right? Or your family brand, et cetera. And so for us, it's very tailored. And there really is, in almost every situation, looking back over a couple hundred deals, an optimal buyer where it's worth more to them. And not only is it worth more to them, but, They'll also let you achieve the qualitative things around your employees, around the people you care about, and just the what the lasting impact of your business is gonna be. And so that's really exciting. It means we can make a very a substantial difference for people at the most important time of their business lives in tandem with the deal team. But I think you hit on a, a great point there. And it's common misconception that a, you know, an LOI is exactly what it says, and that's a deal. So it's fun to get up and do that. As it relates to your question on how do you build value, Jared, you said five years, and that was a great thing to say. Too often we get, there's a transaction when there's an event, right? Death or divorce or something, you know, just somebody gets tired of running their business. It takes years to prepare for these with your CPA, with your trust attorney, and we love to be involved in those conversations as well. What is going to be valuable to a buyer, right? So there's the value creation piece of how do you maximize the number? of liquidity. Yep. That's usually around profitability, but multiples of profitability vary and depend greatly on quality of your management team to take it to the next level, right? Because a buyer is buying tomorrow. They're not buying actually what you produced last year. They're buying next yeah. year. Yep. And so org chart, a lot of companies are inevitably the president and the owner is also the person that makes it tick, that does the sales or incense people, et cetera. So that next generation of management This will be music to your ears, but it's absolutely true. Quality of financials, right? Yeah. Almost every deal hinges on a quality of earnings analysis and the outcome, not only getting the right deal done, but even getting a deal done at all, really depends heavily on the quality of your financials, whether it's an audit or the other end of the spectrum or something in between. Really, it has millions, if not tens of millions of dollars of impact on a, call it a $50 million transaction. I guess to confirm, I mean, we see a lot of deals,
0: but that's not our primary business. So we've advised clients that having some level of financial statements or time well spent, a lot of our clients are very conservative. They're their own bank. So there isn't necessarily a third-party requirement in a lot of scenarios for the financials. So you think a couple of years worth of reviewed or audited financials offer an our our return on investment for clients in,
1: in the actual deal itself? Absolutely. I mean, if, if for the boards that I'm on or even, you know, so take off my investment banker hat. Yeah. You know, if we know that we're two or three or four years from a transaction, I know the, you know, whatever the price tag is of even an audit looks yeah big, but when you say, okay, you know, I don't know if that's 30 grand or a hundred grand or whatever it is, but when you say, okay, every dollar that I lose or save in the quality of earnings analysis, when I get to the transaction is a multiple of six times that dollar, eight times that dollar, 10 times that dollar which by the way, may eventually make it the right transaction or the wrong transaction. There is substantial ROI, even though it's an expense, and I get that as a business owner, theres substantial ROI in yeah. a couple of years of doing as well as you can on your financial statements if you've got a meaningful company.
0: Love to run another assumption by you here. Again, there might be a selection bias that occurs. you know the stuff that we see is inherently going to be more related to tax and insurance. To what extent are you seeing state and local tax pop up during due diligence and create conversations and issues in these deals when companies go from kind of just running something quote small and, and selling to a more sophisticated buyer?
1: More often than I think you would guess quite frequently. Yeah. Diligence is real. And I think that's a common misperception. I get it too, right? You you think in business, that you shake hands and you know everybody does the deal that's on the three, three pager, right? Well, that's not... People that write 50 or $100 million checks, there's a, there are levels of diligence that you've never seen before as a business owner.
0: Yeah. Maybe shifting gears a little bit here. I've watched interest rates, as everyone else have, come down significantly. And I've watched a lot of bonds get paid off out of our client portfolios as companies refinance at these you know, new historic lows. And it seems as though it's created a lot of dry powder on the sidelines. So despite a global pandemic being very scary, and it creates economic uncertainty in the, in the near term, it seems as though a lot of people have have recalibrated and are now like on a shopping spree looking to acquire companies on the cheap. Is that perception grounded in anything that you're seeing in reality right now?
1: Absolutely. When I started 20 years ago in investment banking, we had one one pager that had like the 15 private equity firms that even existed back then, right? And we thought we were all real fancy cuz we kind of knew about how much money about half of them had. Well, fast forward 20 years and now everybody that any of us ever worked with has a private equity fund and there's 4,000 of them. There's another couple hundred private debt funds. There is no doubt a ton of capital on the sidelines that wants to do deals. And the reality is, is, there haven't been many good assets for them to bid on. You can imagine that if you're one of these companies, right. And it's, you know, your blood, sweat and tears are a multi-generational business. It's pretty hard to say, Hey, I think it's the perfect time during a global pandemic to push that red button. And so The things that those buyers who need to put money to work, by the way, that is their business model, right? They have fund vintages and they have to put money to work to generate IRR to raise their next fund. But there have not been many good things for them to buy. And as a result, it's actually been a pretty good time to be in market. In fact, maybe even a better time, which seems a little bit counterintuitive. But we're still getting deals done. Our December is going to be the busiest December we've ever had. And values really, even when the stock market had gone to, what, 18000 Jared, back in the March we didn't see really much of a correction in values in the private market just because of that supply-demand imbalance of capital. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of money chasing good deals. Now, I would say that there are some deals that maybe were doable before that might be structured different now with earnouts, et cetera. But if you've got a good company, it is a heck of a time to be in market. In fact, maybe even a better time, but it's very situational dependent, but absolutely the, the market is on, it's not off, and there's business to be done
0: you know as i've looked at the markets over the last 10 years there's there appears to be a kind of a disintermediation that's occurring within a lot of the traditional banking industries and so you're seeing kind of asset managers step in and fill this corporate direct lending space downstream of where some of the biggest banks like to play and i guess creating profits the opportunity that used to go to the banks to these investors and and that seems to be playing across private equity as well i guess knowing that that there's so much dry powder on the sideline what are some of the financing options for growth and acquisition and, and liquidity that exist today in this current environment for people that own and operate privately held businesses?
1: Great question. It's, a, it's an exciting one, quite frankly. It's it's one of the reasons that we exist. The great news is there are a lot of options. I think most company owners think that, hey, you know, either I'm it's my bank, right, or my balance sheet, or I've got a commercial bank, right? And they've got a probably a revolving line, maybe a term loan right? But pretty conservative, right? Collateral-based, low interest rate, probably accelerated amortization. And then someday I'm going to push the red button and sell it, right? And I'll get a windfall and I'll send it to advisors to manage and that'll be the deal. The reality is, is equity is 30% cost of capital if you're a business owner. Bank debts call it 4 or 5%. There are very few things that banks actually want you to use money for, basically buying things, right? Or putting it back into your business. We take a lot of pride if Corporate attorney says, hey, Bridgepoint, here's a $50 million company. They need a good advisor to sell. We take a lot of pride in saying, okay, timeout. Are you saying you want to sell or are you saying you'd like liquidity for your family or have a charitable impact? Oh, by the way, did you know that you can also achieve liquidity partial or almost complete through debt dividend recap, through a minority recap, de-risking, et cetera. And so across the capital structure and capital spectrum between bank debt at called four or 5% and equity at 30%, There's capital priced in between that can allow you to take chips off the table, but keep your company, right? Which a lot of guys say, boy, that's great. I can get rid of my personal guarantee. I can keep the brand. I can keep going to work in the morning, but I can send 30 million bucks to my advisor and my family's taken care of. That sounds like a dream scenario to a lot of company owners, but then also just capital to allow for acquisition capital or, hey, I've got a software business, right? I don't have any collateral. It's contracts. There's a lot of aggressive capital out there in between that can allow you to grow faster to de-risk personally, right? Or give you options other than just sell. And maybe you still decide to choose to sell, but boy, if it was my dad's company, we talk a lot about the dad factor, right? If it was my dad's company, if he's gonna sell his life's work or our family's legacy, I'd sure like to like him to know what those other two or three or four options that he did decided not to execute on were before he pulls that trigger.
0: There's been a lot of growth through acquisition now for an extended period of time in the public capital markets. You know, you look at Amazon and Google and, and Microsoft, a lot of these small emerging technologies get gobbled up and bolted on. And I think probably some of that has to, to deal with the innovator's dilemma. You know, it's very difficult to innovate from within your own existing organization. But I guess, to what extent do you see strategic m a as a growth vehicle in the middle markets? Is that starting to show up? Is that an opportunity to, today that might not have been?
1: Absolutely, Jared. That phenomenon has come down market. In fact, not only for companies, but even for private equity firms, whose generally their business model was to buy right and sell better. Yeah. The markets are so efficient, even in the private markets, the liquid markets, that that doesn't work anymore. So it's more about what you do with it. What do you make in between? And almost so, most private equity purchases, if you're going to sell your company, you're either a target or a platform. In other words, we're going to consolidate things into you, or you're going to be consolidated into. Another company. That trend almost across sectors that we work in to a T has continued to accelerate. And, you know, there's winners and losers. And I think it's a really interesting time during the pandemic where capital has become a little less of a commodity and more of a haves and have nots situation. Yeah. It's where the well capitalized folks, whether it be a trucking company or a software company or something else, can really use this as an opportunity to build out their business and their. Their competitive stance in the market that they're in, we see kind of best-in-class boards and management teams viewing this as an opportunity to say, "Hey, let's make sure we're appropriately capitalized, so that we're here to be opportunistic." As you know, there's a lot of disruption in the market.
0: Yeah, if you were to have a a client, so we use a really simple planning format. You know, Delap exists to create clarity and confidence for clients around their decisions, and so you spend a lot of time. What's true now in clarity around where they are going? So it's essentially a a now, where, how model. What's true now? Where are we going? Thus, once we have those two endpoints, we can figure out how to get there. So if we have a client that's wanting to sell in three to five years, I guess, what would be some of those things that we should prioritize that they would need to get accomplished? If we're going to maybe go into 2021 with a one-year plan of, we're going to be closer to being sales ready, what would be some of those things that three to five years out they should begin to prioritize and maybe make a goal for 2021.
1: Absolutely. Well, from a tax efficiency standpoint, not that I'm a CPA, because I'm not. In fact, I've never had an accounting class, but little known fact. Don't worry, we have a lot of CPAs on <laughs> staff. But certainly the soon, from a tax standpoint, right, and rates and structuring, Yeah. usually when people hire us, it's too late, right? So the sooner, the better, from just a structuring standpoint. Certainly, we talked about quality of financials. That's huge. I would start that now if you're within the, certainly within the three-year window, Mm -hmm. four-year window. And I think just management team, right? Who are the right people to back? And by the way, it's not just a name on an org chart. It's actually got to be the right people. People that write big checks are smart about backing the right right jockeys. To what extent are
0: they locked up with some sort of deferred comp? I mean, is that time well spent
1: trying to create some sort of an incentive structure for retention? Well, I think it's time well spent for your current company, right? It's always good yeah. to invite your people and to have everybody aligned. I think that's mission critical. But no, that'll, that'll most likely be redone. Okay. A transaction. Yeah. I would say time is better spent on growing the key value driver, which for most businesses is EBITDA, right? Or cash flow and defensibility. So growth trajectory of EBITDA, growing EBITDA and trajectory. And part of that then relates to market, right? Am I in a good enough market where somebody can say, hey, you're a $50 million company? If you're a $50 million company in a $100 million market, that's not that exciting, right? For buying the next five years. If you're a $50 million company in a $5 billion market and it's fragmented, that's exciting, right? You can say, okay, I can picture as a buyer how I'm going to make 50 into 200. As a result, I'm going to pay you 12 times, not four times.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Awesome. Any other kind of priorities you think? I mean, we sometimes talk to our clients about some pre-acquisition due diligence, almost simulate due diligence on ourselves voluntarily to discuss unearth some of the skeletons before so we can begin to address them?
1: Absolutely. Customer relationships, right? I mean, they're going to make customer calls. Yeah. Customer concentration is still the biggest driver other than growth of multiple, right? So diversity of customer base. I think something really important, Jared, I didn't mention, but for private companies is getting the personal trust and estate planning in order so that it actually works with a transaction having some sense of what a transaction may look like. So I think the team approach of having your team nailed, CPA, wealth management side, and a state attorney, as well as investment banker, is just mission critical to have all those pieces working versus saying, hey, good news, I've got an LOI and here's a state attorney, make sure you figure this out. Well, that's largely too late as it is with tax.
0: We've talked about on this show before as well is looking at value so we can prescribed goals, and then the goals inform strategy or behaviors. And a lot of our clients are very philanthropic and in the opportunity to integrate philanthropy or legacy planning, which obviously then is supporting of the estate tax minimization to the extent that you can get everyone on the same page early on. It's the difference between noise and music. It's simply coordination. And so if you can coordinate your balance sheet across all of your advisors, you get a better outcome.
1: Absolutely. And a chance to to be strategic and dream a little bit about what the impact of your monetization can be versus, hey, make sure you twist the screws to save us 10 grand at the closing table, right? It's too late.
0: Absolutely. Well, Matt, as we kind of put a bow on the conversation, I wanted to shift back to you personally. Not that you've figured it out, but you're fighting the good fight. You know, you're married and you got three beautiful kids and you're running this successful, rapidly growing business. Investment banking, known for its long, heinous hours. I'm curious how you manage time, how you think about time. If time is truly the only asset that we can't make more of, how have you thought about the competing priorities that you have in your life and kind of what are you doing right? And where are some opportunities for improvement?
1: I view time as the most precious commodity that God's given us. And so uh, I think intentionality about time is kind of where I'm at in my life phase as a 40-year-old business owner that still first priorities are faith and family before business. And I think... And so very strategic about time, also very disciplined about not letting calendars run us or me personally. We take a lot of pride in being an investment bank where not only for me and my family, but for the families that are our family or employees at Bridgepoint, Mm -hmm. it's more important to be a dad than it is to be an investment banker. It really is. And it's got to be. And and you know what? We don't think that has to come at a cost to our business. In fact, we take a lot of pride in having good people work here. And if you're not, you're probably not going to be here. And if I were selling a business or trusting somebody with the most important transaction, I'd want to know that our values are aligned. And so we talk a lot more about values than we do about ours. And growing up in investment banking, it was kinda of like even if you were done, you don't you don't want to be the first guy out, right? Because people remember that a bonus. Well, it's important to be a good to be a good husband and be a good father before it is a good investment banker. But we also view I view time at work as a good opportunity to show my kids what hard work looks like. and I think that's something that is still very valuable. And so we don't apologize about working hard. In fact, I think it's our job to work hard, but certainly it's also our job to be a good human first and a good parent and a good husband. And so it's, I think, toughest, probably the toughest dynamic for a business owner, amongst those, but it's also a blessing. Uh, I view it as a blessing in that we're really excited about the business we're growing but to not lose sight of that relative to you know, faith and family first.
0: It's challenging. I think the, uh, the highest dividend wealth can afford you is to do whatever you want with whomever you want, whenever you want. But yet a byproduct of wealth is often complexity uh, and complexity takes time. And yeah, so it's a challenging dynamic of, of priority management. And obviously a shortage of time seems to be a common denominator amongst all of the clients that, that you and I work with. Amen. I guess then as we think about the advice that you'd have for kind of kids about career and, and life and business. What are some of the things that you're focused on with your own children?
1: <laughs> I'm hoping they don't become investment bankers. I, my goal for my oldest son is that he's a fly fishing guide. Cause if my office was a river, Ooh, yes. That'd be pretty good. Right? No, I, I don't mean that I'd be, I'd be thrilled if my kids wanted to be investment bankers, but I'd also be thrilled if they wanted to be teachers or. Yeah got it. I'm an investment banker, got into this field 20 years ago because you made the most money doing it. It has nothing to do with why I get up in the morning now. And I think that's probably a pretty common journey. Yep. I think it's about purpose. I think it's about impact. I think it's about being passionate about what you're doing, but it's kind of back to that that question. Life's most fundamental question is who are you helping? And I think when you're getting up and helping people, that can look like a lot of things. And I think that's it's more important than the paycheck. Not that we don't like nice things, but That's just kind of a byproduct, I think, if you're doing it right. And so I think it's more about purpose and mission and passion.
0: Awesome. So tomorrow I'm publishing a blog, the six things you should do for effective or successful year-end. So by the time this goes live, it's already going to be on our website. But one of the points was just the value of lifelong learning. And as we approach year-end, kind of putting together the things that people want to learn and be focused on, kind of the intersection of things that matter and things that we can control is what what we focus and learn and grow. So I presume you're a lifelong learner and avid consumer of books. I mean, any book recommendations for the listeners, anything you bumped into in 2019 that excuse me, 2020 here, I'm only a year behind. That would be worth, worth a read.
1: Oh, that entire bookshelf behind me that you can see here on zoom, Jared is filled with books that I aspire to read. So as my admin knows about once a week, I send her, Hey, order this book. And I seem to never get through the stack, but the book that I'm reading uh, currently is, Driven by Eternity, John Baviera. I'm just looking at it here on my the stand next to my desk. Huge believers in development, in uh, making yourself better. The other sign I've got down in my office is simply get better, because everybody else is. Yeah. And we work hard at that. We've got a success staff on our success coach on staff, et cetera. That we're a firm that grows people. We think that's really important to grow ourselves, and we think it's our job. And so I'm enjoying Driven by Eternity. I'm only about a fourth of the way through it. And I also am an avid consumer of podcasts because that seems to be a little bit more easy to consume with where I'm at life phase. Oh, there you go. We'll have to make success at last one of your new favorites. <laughs> there you go.
0: Actually, before we wrap up, help me understand the success coach. What provoked that and how's that working for you as an owner? Obviously, there's an expense associated with it and challenging to measure an ROI. Just talk to me about the thought that preceded it and kind of how you're thinking about it today.
1: Absolutely. Great question. I, with Natasha, Natasha's my wife and our COO. We didn't get into that dynamic. She's, we're a yeah. husband uh, leadership team, but that's pretty awesome. It is awesome. And it's an opportunity and creates all of its own special circumstances. I love that you chose the word opportunity. I was talking to it my is. team
0: about reframing what they just said. I was like, can we reframe what you just said as an opportunity? They said, absolutely.
1: <laughs> I'll give him a shout out. His name is Phil Toll. If anybody's into music, he was the famous kind of guru for Metallica and a bunch of. Dick Vermeule with the Rams back in the 90s in the Super Bowl, and he works with famous people, but he also works with boutique investment bankers, evidently. But he has been extremely impactful, not only on our business, but also our personal life. And I think we don't apologize about it. Back in, along the themes of getting better, I think as leaders, we're just somebody else on the staff and we're not perfect either. And so we work every day to make a, make ourselves a better version of us. But I, I can tell you that it's been massively impactful, not only for us, but for our team. And I think I, I said it earlier, but we're a firm that grows people. And I think that attracts people. People want to go where they can not only make a nice paycheck, but also they can do better and maximize the skills and talents that they've been given. And so it's it's really unique. Natasha and I say, boy, if we would have talked about that back at Deutsche Bank, we all would have sat around the table and raised our eyebrows at each other. It's very soft, but it makes a big difference. It's investing in our people and they deserve it.
0: Yeah. In a professional services environment, your assets are your people. I've often said what differentiates our firm is no different than what differentiates a football team or a basketball team. It's your people, your culture and your execution. So to the extent you can get better there, you you begin to win. I've often said you have to win in recruiting if you want want to win on game day. It's both. And so I guess as a business owner myself and, and kicking around that idea of what a success coach would look like, any guidance in terms of what would be the evidence of the ROI? Obviously, investing in your people is always a great thing, but where have you seen the impact Yeah, as an owner?
1: Great question. And it is a tough one because it is soft, right? I mean, yeah. It's not, it's not numbers, but I see it in uh, alignment of culture. And I see it really about, we talk a lot about, again, soft stuff, but we talk a lot about core values. We talk about dad factor, right? About doing the right thing first. Yeah. Yeah. Right? according to core values and the alignment around that. Look, at the end of the day, we're all human. We're all imperfect. And we all bring our own set of circumstances and baggage to the table every day at the workplace, just like we do at home, right? And getting alignment around fundamentally how we serve people and by what code and core value set makes all the difference. I mean, you know, when we're in a $80 million deal and it's go time and hey, there's fee advice and there's good advice, I am only more confident that we're living the good advice every time because of the investments that we've made on the soft stuff. It's not just a plaque on the wall that has, hey, here's our core values, but living it and working on it actively with the success coach has made all the difference. I think it's candidly the only difference between us and every other investment bank, right? In our field, everybody went to a fancy school. They were all 4-0 students. That smarts a commodity. Values and ethics are not.
0: I like it. But, but probably not too many Nebraska football players from a gravel road. Not too many. Not too many. Matt, I really appreciate your generosity. Thank you for sharing your time and your knowledge with our listeners today. It seems as though Bridgepoint does a beautiful job of providing industry information around kind of the, the debt markets and M&A and sector analyses. That stuff's all available at your website?
1: Yes, sir. Bridgepointib.com as in investment banking.
0: Awesome. So I've I've loved that resource. Beautiful way to kind of keep a pulse on where things are at and learn a lot of information along the way. So Matt, thanks so much for our time today. We'll have to rerun it sometime in the future.
1: Jared, thank you so much for the opportunity. Great chatting with you.